Well, once again, uh, technically speaking, yes. A, a good good morning to you all, and and um, I got to tell you, this is a first. Now, I've done a lot of gospel meetings where I preach three times on Sunday, but it's normally kind of the class time, and then the worship time, and then meet again in the evening. This is the first time in 42 years, and I don't know how many gospel meetings that uh, I've ever preached like you know three in a row, like boom, boom, boom. And I got a feeling that maybe by the time we go to lunch, I might feel like I've been rode hard and put away wet. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be fine. I did do a meeting up in Reno, Nevada one time, and that was crazy. It was two and a half days, like Friday night, Saturday, but it was like that night, three and Saturday, three. I mean, it was seven sermons in a short period of time, and it was kind of crazy. But anyway, but I seemed to survive that, but I was also a much younger man back then, too. But I just appreciate your good attention. I really, really do. And I know that you normally have a class at, at this period of time, and, and of course this becomes exceptional, and so I'll just tell you that, that I have no class, but I <laughs> but, uh, don't want you to take that in the wrong way either. I want you to think about something as we bring this series of the essence of Christ-centered commitment. And I just want to say, closing that being a Christian seems easy when life is easy when life is sweet when all is going well and there really are no major problems any problems that we do have are at a minimum and blessings are abundant good jobs, good home finances are fine health is good Seems to be peace in the community, peace in the congregation. And we look at this, and some may say, in those circumstances, of which we kind of long for. And we look and say, well, you know what? Well, being a Christian's a pretty easy thing to do. But what do we do when we have a monotonous job, or maybe no job at all? Troubled marriage, challenges and issues in marriage and the family dynamic, perhaps financial problems, serious health issues, battles with depression, or even a cold faith exacerbated by spiritual burnout because of just what is required day after day, week after week, month after month, seemingly year after year. And do we ever meet a new day asking, what challenges am I going to face today? We're doing a really extensive study in the book of Job on Tuesday nights in one of the elders' homes, and a good number of us attend that, and plus several join on in Zoom as well on Tuesday nights. And we've been talking a lot about the challenges we face just because we were looking at the challenges that Job faced, and what a remarkable book. But we look at the day and we say, what challenges do I face today And when there's already difficulties? We begin to question things. We begin to question ourselves. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know somebody that has been there. I suppose we all have at certain times, certain degrees. Because we've all been down physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if you ever at those times entertain the thought of spiritually just Throwing in the towel. 
enough of this. Because it's just what seems to be called upon me all of the time and just don't really seem to be getting anywhere and I'm not happy. I, by nature, am a very, very happy person. I'll tell you this, and I'm just going to say this, and I've believed this and said this a long time, and Vicki will tell you, I am happy. And one of the reasons I'm happy is because I choose to be happy. Now, that's another lesson, really. But I think we can make choices about happiness, even in the midst of a lot of difficulty. Brethren, I want you, when you are entertaining at those thoughts and times of throwing in the towel, I want you to remember Jesus, and I want you to remember Jesus in Gethsemane. And remember the events that took Tim to the cross. And we know what happened there. He had been betrayed by one of his own, denied three times by another one of those men that had been very, very close to him. He was taken, he was arrested, he was defamed, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, he was scourged. All of the things that we see in the agony of Jesus, through a mockery of trials, and even an ungodly, heathen, Gentile, Roman governor that looked at him in the situation and say, there's no fault in him. I find him to be a just man, but yet was cowardly enough to give in to the constituency of the Jewish mob that said and yelled out to the top of their lungs, crucify. And he went through the ordeal of Calvary's cross. But I want to tell you something. Jesus didn't quit. But don't ever think for a moment that he was not tempted to. You see, I believe what the book of Hebrews says about it. It says that Jesus is tempted in all points even as we are. Yet without sin. And if anybody takes the position, well, Jesus didn't quit because he's God. He's the Son of God. He's all of those things, and I'll tell you, he was that, every bit of it. But you've got to understand that what he did, he did as a human, he did as a man, even as he lowered himself. You see, because of Jesus, if, if, he, if he was able to get through all of that because of his deity, I can't relate to that. I can't relate to that. But when Jesus does as a man, and if he was tempted the way I am, because I'm going to tell you, if I was put in that situation that Jesus put in, if you were put in that situation, wouldn't you be tempted to quit? Or how about if you had the power, the authority, to call legions of angels and to eradicate them all? Wouldn't that kind of go through your mind, Mark? He had already had that discussion. <laughs> but he didn't quit. saying if you're thinking for a moment that he didn't quit because he's God I want you to rethink your position on that and of who Jesus is and what he was and what he did at the time and the question becomes how could he do it you see he fervently prayed three times fervently prayed before all this even came to its fruition in Matthew 26 Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And I want to tell you, I believe that the epitome of the sacrifice of Jesus 
while he's alive nailed to that cross is when he takes upon himself as suspended between heaven and earth that he takes upon himself the sins of humanity. And I'll tell you what, there is some kind of cosmic thing going on because while he's on the cross taking upon himself the sins of humanity, there's a darkness upon the face of the earth. Because will the Father be in fellowship with sin? Not for a moment. And in his humanness, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? And fulfilling the 22nd Psalm, though God never forsook him, it certainly felt like it, no doubt. How could he endure? And I'll tell you how he can endure. Faith that the Father would exalt him, would lift him up. Faith that the Father would lift him up. Just a short time after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension back up into heaven. Peter said to the Sanhedrin council, you read about it in Acts chapter 5, by the way. In Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. My friends, it has everything to do with exaltation, and that's what I really want us to be thinking about. And now we go back to Philippians, where, as I said before, we've been doing a lot of camping. And we go to Philippians chapter 2, and we read this in brevity because I dealt with the preceding verses more thoroughly in the last lesson. But I want us to look at these verses again in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. While the word for exalt, highly exalted, as it's very descriptive, and even as we see that it is modified, that he's exalted, and it's almost a redundancy, highly exalted. Because an exaltation is a lifting up, it's a rising, it's an elevation, if you will. And while the word for exalt in the Greek is, is hupso, or in this very strengthened form, stronger form of hupersoo, Actually, our English word exalt is very much a transliteration, not a translation, but a transliteration from Latin. Exaltus. To be lifted up, to be elevated, is where we actually even get our word etymologically of, of altitude. You know, just We think of that and measurements by means of altitude. But here it says that God also has highly exalted him, and Jesus knew that that would take place. My friends, exaltation. Exaltation has been promised to faithful Christians as well. That when we look at the essence of Christ-centered commitment, we see that it too can be found or seen in exaltation because of the promises of God. 
The promises that God has given to his people, to his faithful. I'll tell you what, of all time, but certainly for us who found ourselves in relationship with God, covenant relationship with God, sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we too can be lifted up. I love the expression that is given by James in James chapter 4 and verse 10. And he makes this appeal to those Christians, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I love that. Brethren, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we should humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and the sight of God and learn that only he can lift us up. And that's, I have a few factors that I want to talk about, that he can lift us up. And it's not a matter of self-exaltation, of lifting ourselves up, or looking for others to exalt or to lift us up, and though people can do that, and beware of that. That's what Hollywood's all about. But we're talking about he, that is in reference to God, can lift us up. And that's what I want to offer with you, some closing thoughts for this series that we've been dealing with since Friday evening and what it is that he can lift us from. And I say to you, I say to you that he can lift us up from the depth of sin. Be so lifted. We can be lifted up from the depth of sin. Please turn over to Romans chapter 7, would you please? Romans chapter 7. And in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writing this letter kind of in the middle of the context, but in Romans chapter 7 and in verse 15, Paul is going to ask some questions, rhetorical they may be, great debate, is he talking about himself personally at that time, his life earlier, or is it a personification, or is he just talking about mankind in general, but using the personal pronouns, and I want to tell you what, I just don't really care about the debate. What I care about, what I care about is he's making a very clear, clear point of what we face, what he faced, we face, we all face. But he speaks about one, certainly, that doesn't have Christ yet. But we look at this in Romans 7, 15, for what am I doing? I do not understand. Verse 15, this is. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, this influence, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Just stop there right now, just for a moment. I want to tell you what Paul's saying. He says, it's a spiritual tug of war out there. Now, was that descriptive of us at any time in our lives, even before it became, or even now? Are there, do we look at life, we see there are things that I, that I know I, I want to do, I must do, I should do because it's the will of God. And I want to do it, and I go, this is the right thing to do, and then I don't do it. And there are any situations say, now these are things I know I'm not to do, I'm not supposed to do. God would not have me to do that, I, and I will not to do it, but then I turn around and do it. Does that apply to anybody in this room besides me? 
of that spiritual tug of war that's going on. Now I'm old school, and and, and I'm old school when it comes to cartoons. You know what? And I, I love the old Tom and Jerry. Remember that was back when they had good cartoons, right? Any, any of you kids even know about Tom and Jerry? Cat and okay, oh good, 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 good. And, and so here's Tom and Jerry, and Tom the cat, and Jerry the little mouse, and boy, they're always just getting at it with each other, aren't they? And they have these little battles and disagreements and so forth. And there's just about that time. The Jerry little mouse, he's getting ready to do something bad to Tom. And he's just getting ready to do it, and 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 and, and you've got this little angel. Jerry that pops on his shoulder and says, Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, you know the good part, right? And he looks at it. But then what happens next? The little demon Jerry. Do it, do it, do it. And I don't know what the cartoons were trying to show, but I'll tell you what, it's kind of descriptive of what's going on. We've got this tug of war going on all the time, and we're grown ups, and we've got all these things that we see. And here's, here's the apostle saying, you look at this, and we look at this difficulty, this plight, this war that we have, and we've been there before. And so he asked this question, I want you to go now to verse 24 where we left off. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a war, and he speaks about death. Death is always a separation. He says, "Who, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And we've got to learn that. That we've got to be compelled by the Spirit and not by the flesh and the spiritual part of us influenced by the things of God. But who will deliver me from this body of death? There is good reason to believe. In fact, Albert Barnes even brings this out in his commentary on this particular passage. That there was a form of execution. Rome had many different forms of execution for heinous criminals. Not just crucifixion, and that was heinous enough. But for those that were enemies of the state and were heinous, terrible criminals, there were times in Rome that they would take those individuals, and what they would do is they literally would chain them or they would bind them to a corpse, to a dead body, and throw them in a dungeon. And as they were bound to that body of death, and that body began to decay. It began to decompose. And it stank. It smelled horrible. And you can imagine all of the disease and the, just the filth and the putrefaction that comes about. And that the, the individual would become so sick and they would die a terrible death themselves. Is there a possibility, Paul, writing to Rome, Paul knowing some of these things, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he answers the question, I thank God. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know that we can't do it on our own to be delivered from that body of death. There's a way that seems right to man. The end thereof is the way of death. Oh, Lord, I know that it's not a man who walks to, 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 to save or deliver himself. No, we've got to depend upon God. Jeremiah said it. Solomon said it. It's found all over the place. We know that our only freedom is deliverance through Christ, and it is Christ that, that says, Come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We know that passage in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, Take 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Only Christ can deliver, only Christ can give it. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to tell you that if we're going to be lifted, if we're going to be lifted up from the depth of sin, it can only happen through Jesus Christ. And I know that I'm primarily speaking to people that are Christians. And we've talked about this deliverance made possible by God's grace. We've referred to Titus 2.11 about a half a dozen times in the last few days. But it's only the gospel of Christ that could so lift us. Why Paul says yes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For therein, that is in the gospel, that's the subject. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, even as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Brethren, all I can say is that what people need to do and that what we need to be reflecting, reflect upon is experience Christ-centered commitment and be lifted up by God's saving grace in the powerful gospel. And let us all reflect upon this, even as Christians, and be lifted up from the depth of sin and quit allowing sin to just take over our lives. Be lifted up. This is exaltation that is the result of that kind of commitment. I'll tell you, he can lift us from doubt and despair as well. He can lift us from doubt and despair. The world is a crazy place. We're outside talking, and people are asking some questions about California, you know? Okay. Yeah, I've preached in a lot of places. I've preached in the South, and I've preached in the East Coast, and I've preached in the Great Northwest, and I've preached in the Middle. Yeah, I mean, I've preached, oh my goodness, I've preached in a few places, right? And yeah, I don't know. There's this stigma attached for California, and all I can tell you is we deserve most of it. Okay, now. <laughs> no, but you know what we were talking about? And, you know, the world's a crazy place, and we get it. And I'm just going to say this as I was saying some up there. You know, we don't live in a lot of the mess that you may think that we that, that's out there, and there's a lot of mess out there, and we, we just don't there. And just, just go home and look at the map of Morro Bay, California. And we're a long ways from Los Angeles, a long ways from San Francisco, or even a long ways from Fresno. Okay, I mean, just 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 take a walk, and you'll finally pl- find this place of Moral Bay. And parenthetically, I'll say paradise. But anyway, <laughs> but the fact is, the world is a crazy place. It's broken, and I see the same problems everywhere. Terry, I was doing a meeting in Las Cruces, New Mexico one time, and I got so many hits there from a few of the brethren about being a California preacher, right? And the longer I was there and being filled in and finding out some real issues they were dealing with that, and I thought, holy moly, I can't wait to get back home, man, where there are some, you know, and I'm nothing against those brethren, but you know what I found out? They were dealing with some of the same problems we've been dealing with. Because I'm going to tell you what, they have no boundaries geographically. But what the world do Because this world is a crazy place, it often causes me to be cynical and skeptical. I can be that way at times. And and, and what it does is it often alienates more and more uh, from God, that that this cynicism and the skepticism. And and, and what the devil wants in that tug of war is he wants me to ask these questions. Can I really succeed as a Christian? Can I do it? Because I can doubt and I can despair. Now I'm kind of using myself in this this situation because I don't want to be that way. And I try not to be that way. But we've got to be careful because we can doubt and we can despair. And we can say I can't do it and I can't win the battle. But we can. We can. 
Listen, God did not call us to be flawless, though we need to try our very best, but He did call us to be faithful. And there's a difference. And we make our mistakes, but we're honest about them. And we, we appeal to God and, and to His mercy, to His grace and prayer and genuine repentance. But we, we are not a flawless people. The disciples of Jesus, do you think they ever doubted and they ever despaired? Even the original apostles? The disciples of Jesus didn't know what to think. They saw their master hanging on a cross. They didn't get it, though he had told them, seemingly defeated. And when he later appeared to them in resurrected form, it says that, that you find in Luke 24, principally in, in verses 36 to 38, but when he appeared to them, they were terrified and frightened. They knew he had died on that cross. You know what he asked them? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? It's always a faith issue. Always a faith issue. And my friends, God provides the strength and comfort we need in life. There are so many issues that we face. There were so many issues that the apostles faced. You know, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and again, we've talked about the apostle Paul to, in a large, to a large extent, and the man of courage and faith he was, but don't ever think for a moment that there were not times at which he was feeling some despair and some loneliness some real loneliness. In times he was left alone. And I love this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, for indeed, 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, Paul writes, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, insides were fears. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Here's the Apostle Paul, the experienced, faithful, dedicated Apostle Paul. And I'll tell you, all this was going on and we had to deal with in these times. You know, and sometimes all it took was somebody like a Titus to show up, and he talks about the coming of Titus. And it lifted his spirits, and it helped him, and it encouraged him. Titus was a man that he had mentored in many respects, and he had encouraged and strengthened, but now we see that kind of reversal, if you will. Carrie, I don't know if I've really ever told you about I probably have. I don't know if I've ever told you about the coming of Maury, her uncle Maury. The year was 1980, I suppose it was. We were in a congregation up in Northern California, and things were not going well. When we got there, the church was about ready to split over a situation that was very unfortunate. A lot of people not respecting Scripture. A gentleman shows up to my front door on a Friday night. We'd only been there a short time, and he says, Brent, about this matter. I don't want you to touch it. Leave it alone. Don't preach about it. Don't talk about it. Be done with it. Turn around, got in his truck, and left. One thing your Uncle Maury taught me was that there's two ways you can get me to preach about something. You can ask me to preach on it or ask me not to preach on it. So I gave him both barrels on Sunday morning 
And I said, Vicky packed your... Well, no, most of our bags weren't even unpacked yet. But we survived for a little bit there and was going on. And, and I talked to Maury, Maurice Estes, uh, Carrie's uncle, who's a preacher and, 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 and trained me in a lot of different things back in those, early, those days of the 1970s. And, and anyway, but we talked a lot on Sunday nights about the day. And I was just trying to camouflage, conceal that, that I was hurting. And we were dealing with problems. And he must have detected it because I, I wasn't being a very good actor, evidently. And, and that was a Sunday night, probably about 10 o'clock at night. And we... I hung up the phone, and anyway, we'd gone to bed, and 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 so the sudden now you got to understand where he was living down in Central Coast California. We're way up in Northern California, the crow flies, not far from Oregon and not far from Nevada, and so we hung up on the phone on that Sunday night. About five o'clock in the morning, my doorbell rings. Uh, who in the world? And I go there, and open the door. And there's Maury with kind of a sheepish grin, and he says, how can I help? And he'd driven all night. And you know what? He didn't want to get involved with all the personalities and the brethren. He says, let's look at this, and I'll tell you what. What we did all day long is we sat at a dining room table, and we studied, and we studied, and he advised, and we studied, and they took us out for a fabulous dinner that night. We were poor back in those days, man. And then he got in his car Tuesday, and he went home, and nobody knew he was ever there. But I'll never forget the coming of morning, because I was doubting and I was despairing. But I'll tell you, there's so many ways God can lift us up. I'll tell you that. Don't allow these fears to arise. God provides the strength and the comfort that we need in life. Experience the joy of exaltation and be lifted up from doubt and despair by a genuine faith in God's power to deliver. Be lifted up. He can lift us up from apathy. From apathy, just not caring. This indifference. One thing that burnout and cynicism will do, it can cause one to say, I just don't care anymore. This was very well characterized by the -the on-the-street survey where various random people were informed in the street survey that the two biggest problems facing the United States were ignorance and indifference. And when one particular fellow was asked what he thought about that, he quickly replied, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) And I'm afraid that there are too many people like that in the body of Christ. That I don't know and I don't care. And maybe we just kind of want to, you know, just you know, get out of our shells for a bit and go to worship and we go to our jobs and we do these things. But when it comes to these matters that are important matters, we become apathetic. I'll tell you what, we need to be lifted from apathy. We do need to care. We need to care deeply. I don't know what happened to Demas. You remember Demas, a fellow worker with Paul that's mentioned three times in the New Testament text. And the first two times that Demas has spoken of, he's a fellow laborer, a fellow worker of Paul. This is a Christian, a disciple of Christ. But what's the last time that we read about Demas? In Paul's final letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. And what does Paul say about him? That Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. I don't know what happened to Demas. Oh, yes, he loved this present world. Maybe he just stopped caring about what's most important. And Satan used the love of the world to de-energize him. Maybe the church in Laodicea of the seven churches of Asia 
that we read about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And the seventh church that's mentioned, Laodicea, is the only church there were no compliments, no commendations, nothing positive at all. You know, we have two faithful congregations that are spoken of, that we see that in Smyrna and Philadelphia. And we have these other four congregations that were some good. They said, nevertheless, I've got this and some things they need to take care of and they need to repent. But not one good thing is said about Laodicea. But you know what's very tragic about Laodicea? That they had a misrepresentation of themselves. They didn't even understand what they really were, what they really were doing. And so maybe that's what happened. Maybe they were apathetic because it can happen to an entire congregation. They just quit caring, perhaps, became too comfortable with their what? Lukewarm Christianity. I'm telling you what, brethren, we got enough lukewarmness in the, the body of Christ across the land, sitting in way too many pews. They thought they had it all. They thought they had it all. We're rich. We don't need anything. You know, when you study the Revelation letter, those seven letters, I do a study. You guys have probably done this. Brethren have probably done this. But, but you know, you do a study of, of where they were geographically, what their industry was, what their agriculture was, what their horticulture was, what their politics were, what some of the history of those cities. And all of a sudden, all of the imagery that you find that the Lord used in those letters to them, it, it pops, it comes alive. You go, oh, that's why it says, no, you need this ISAP. You see, they had this very well-known eye clinic, if you will, in Laodicea because of, some, because of some medicinal properties that they're able to make this ointment. And so that's why, you know, and, and when he says, you're blind. Oh, okay. I just do that study. Oh, it's a good study. But I want to tell you this. They thought they had it all, and they didn't. And there the Lord made it known to them, no, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are impoverished. I want to tell you that a proper perspective overpowers apathy. That's why we dealt earlier with, with Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Why, why we dealt with that passage, that in 12, 13 it says, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Remember, fear God, keep his commandment. This is man's all, the essence of man's existence, the whole duty of man. That God's going to bring everything into judgment. It's only love that can displace apathy and skepticism. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. John says, this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and they're not grievous. In 1 John 5 and verse 3, brethren, all I can say is experience exaltation and be lifted up from apathy. Tell you something else that we can be so lifted up from and that is for mediocrity. And I told you in a lesson before I had more to say about this. Mediocrity, the very idea of being mediocre. Spiritual complacency, I believe, is a malignancy. It's like a sickness, like a cancer that will ultimately destroy the soul as well as expunge the work of the local church. And too many people are satisfied with good enough religion or what we might call convenient Christianity, as I address. Remember we talked about the rich young man in Matthew chapter 19? You know, well, what good thing must I do? What lack I yet? And he told them, and he went away sorrowful. I'll tell you what. He was complacent in his religious life. He didn't really want to do what it took. He was not going to sacrifice, and he was not going to execute, and he was not going to do it. We've dealt with that. 
But how many people are satisfied with good enough Christianity? Good enough religion? That's good enough. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'll never forget. After I had finished college and was working in one job and left that job, and then I had a little time before I went to work with your Uncle Maury, and, and, and there was a little period of time, and for 13 months I worked in my father-in-law, Vicky's dad, Paul Fields' his cabinet shop. In fact, if you ever want to see any of my handiwork, just go to the Lewis's house in the guest room, and those, you'll see a cabinet there that I made about 100 years ago. <laughs> it's still standing. But the point is, I remember one day I was working along, and Vicky's dad was a master cabinet maker, man. He was good. And I remember all the time that, you know, in the back of his cabinet he had the stent. Fields cabinets. Fields cabinets. And he was good. And, and he was more expensive than most, but, but I'll tell you what, they stood behind him. And I'll tell you, you could have the hinge come off 30 years later. I, I saw him do this of customers from way back when. And he just went and fixed cabinets when charged because they had a lifetime warranty on them. But I was working away, and I was doing something, and he happened to be walked by, and he didn't realize he was there. I said, oh, that's good enough. Wrong thing to say. He said, I'll have you know that that's my name that goes in those cabinets, and we don't do just good enough work. And if you're going to work here at Fields Cap, I'm his son-in-law. He loves me. But he made it known. This cabinet shop doesn't do just good enough work. Well, there's another lesson. We seek to excel and do the best we can. I tell you, a lot of people need to be lifted up from mediocrity. You know, you can you imagine coming to town and, and we have some kind of medical issue? Vicky or myself, we have a medical issue. Here's Vicky. I'll make it, make it her sick, not me. But anyway, but anyway, here's Vicky. has got some kind of problem, and, and, and she needs attention. And I go to Mark and, and, and Carrie. I said, let me tell you, do you have a mediocre doctor that I can take Vicky to? Can you imagine? We want to do that with our cars. We have a car that breaks down. Say, anybody know a mediocre mechanic? We don't want mediocrity in our lives. Why should we ever be satisfied with mediocrity in Christianity? We need to be lifted up from that. Don't be a mediocre Christian. Strive for spiritual excellence. We have looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore... By the mercies of God, Paul says to those brethren, that you present your bodies living as a living sacrifice. These living sacrifice. That's not mediocrity. That you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your spiritual service. Don't be conformed to this world. That's easy to do, but be transformed. Be trained. That, that's a great word, transformed there. Metamorphuo. Like a metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a cocoon to a moth or butterfly. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what's that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, writes Paul. That's got nothing to do with mediocrity. It has everything to do with, yes, seeking to excel, rising above that. God shows us what's best. I tell you one of the most beautiful, beautiful passages before we go to our final point. And be done for today. But it's a prophetic utterance that has such great principle. And you all know it. It's Micah 6. And the prophet poses these questions in Micah 6 and beginning at verse 6. Listen to it carefully. With what shall I become before the Lord? 
and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? That's not what God was after. It's answered in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That's rising above mediocrity. Experience exaltation and be lifted up from apathy. But I say to you finally, because he can so lift us up, and he can lift us up from the fear of death. It's a great mystery. It's a great unknown. We look at it that way in so many ways. We can be lifted from the fear of death. John reminded Christians, the Apostle John, in 1 John, in his epistle of 1 John, chapter 4, <clears throat> And listen to this, and again, beautiful passage. The sentiment is beautiful. The teaching is awesome. But in 1 John 4, verse 17, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, I tell you, he's he's writing out to Christians. Nobody else can have boldness in the day of judgment. If you're not walking with God, there is no boldness in the day of judgment. There's nothing more but sweat of your brow and the knocking of your knees, if I may use that illustration. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him Because he first loved us. Faithful Christians will have boldness in the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But that has everything to do with our faith in God, our walk with him, and our honesty before God and with ourselves. John, we understand, was the last apostle to live and evidently died Pretty much of old age was not martyred, even as Jesus alluded to at the end of God John's gospel, which he talked about. But he saw it all around him. And he really didn't know day to day what might happen, even as he seemingly sent some of his, spent some of his final years in Ephesus. But I often thought about that with John and hearing about perhaps as he if he did about some of his apostolic compadres, if you will, these men of whom he had once been with and worked with, and as they all kind of scatter and take the gospel to various places. And If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's telling, it's, it's horrific of what they experienced. And I can only imagine John hearing about some of the death of these and his brethren and had what he had to deal with. And as he also was witnessing a decline in an apostasia, an apostasy, a falling away of the church. And he lived in a Roman world. It was an ugly world. I don't care how what you may think of any president that we have currently or in the past. I want to tell you what. 
I'll take who we got now before Nero any day. And John lived in that society, and they lived in that. And Christians looked at death all of the time, not in just the natural way, but death because of who they were and what they professed. But then you've got men like Paul, who suffered that martyrdom in time, but who would write in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died or fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. One thing that he's trying to build them up is to know that we have hope. And to those loved ones that have died, they have hope. They're not going to miss out. We have hope. When our journey in this life has been completed, will we be able to sleep in Jesus? He will talk about that in the next verse, in verse 14. These who have slept in Jesus, they've died in the Lord. I preached the funeral for my father, for my mother, and my brother. I preached those funerals. And all I can tell you is a great satisfaction, the great, wonderful satisfaction, emotional that I have, is that these are three people that lived in the Lord and died in the Lord. And then when they died, they died with hope. It's all around us. We're not very far, any one of us, from the death issue. But we can be lifted up from the fear of death. Those who have no hope have every reason to fear. You know, people talk about it, and I do a lot of funerals, and even for funerals that are people not Christians. Did that a lot one time when I'd gone to high school with the local mortician, and he'd call upon me all the time, Brent, this family, they, they have no church, no religion, no nothing, and I need somebody, would you be willing? I'd meet with the family, and we'd talk about things, and you don't want to put a eulogy together, and how sad it is these people, they had not a clue what the Lord was all about. And I got to preach that funeral. People that don't have hope have every reason to fear death. They do. All I can say to you as compassionately, lovingly as I possibly can, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you need to be. We've talked about why Felix trembled. And he certainly didn't want him to think about the judgment to come in Acts 24-25. Paul said in Galatians 3:26 and 27, you're all the sons or children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have you put on Christ? That's what's going to lift you from the fear of death. When we're walking with the Lord, when we're in Christ Jesus, when we have active in our lives every day the sanctification of the powerful blood of Jesus. I cannot say it enough. Experience exaltation and be lifted up from the fear of death. The world and its ways can only keep you down in a spiritual gutter. But God can lift you up through your commitment to His Son, Jesus Christ, and be lifted up. And I don't think we have an invitation song, do we? No. But I want to tell you right now, I'm going to invite you anyway. As together we sit and think. If you've got some spiritual need, If we need to sit down and talk and look at it, do it today. Be lifted up. Let's be committed.
and I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to come and be with you these few short days. Thank you very much. Appreciate very much, Brent. Thank you for coming.